Welcome to Decode Your Burnout, the podcast where we crack the code on burnout based on three primary factors, your programming, environment, and personality. We also feature experts who debunk the myths about what it takes to be successful in their industry and spin those tips to fit the workplace so you can optimize the way you work. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Grossman, a psychologist turned coach, author, and burnout expert. If you're burned out and want to go from exhausted to extraordinary, book a free breakthrough session with me by going to bookachatwithsharon.com. And if you want to see how you're doing and what to focus on next, download the burnout checklist. You'll find the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly forward slash check your burnout. Now let's get started. Hello, Decode Your Burnout fans. Welcome to another episode with me, Dr. Sharon Grossman. Today, I am joined by Julian Reeve, who is the founder of Perfect Equilibrium, a California-based consultancy firm devoted to maximizing employee retention by banishing burnout in small businesses. Born and educated in Cambridge, England, he enjoyed a highly successful career as a musician and entrepreneur, performing in millions or two millions across the globe and winning worldwide critical acclaim for his work on the groundbreaking musical Hamilton. I'm sure you've either seen it or at least heard of it while also finding time to build four thriving businesses in the creative sector. Busy guy, yes? His dedication to work and success triggered a stress-induced heart attack when he was just 43 years old. This event inspired extensive research into the current trends for achievement and provides the fuel for his commitment to disrupting society's approach to work and attitudes to stress. Now an international keynote and TEDx speaker, author and advisory board member for HR.com's Research Institute, Julian inspires creative businesses to find perfect equilibrium in their culture so high achievers can thrive. He has contributed to the Hill newspaper, Fast Company, CEO World Magazine, and ABC, NBC News Networks, and is a regular guest on the podcast circuit, which is why we have you here today, Julian. Welcome to Decode Your Burnout. Thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. So the thing that we usually start with is your burnout story. And we've already kind of touched a little bit on the fact that you have a burnout story, specifically, maybe even a little bit more hardcore than what most of our listeners experience, which is a stress and just heart attack at the age of 43. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so I worked on the Broadway production of Hamilton when it uh, first landed on Broadway for about six months. And then they wanted me to go out to take out the first national tour in San Francisco. So I stepped up to be the music director. I was just one of the team on Broadway. And three months into that job, I was walking home and I experienced tightness in the chest, shooting pains down the arm, sweating, all the stuff. That was on a Friday night. Very long story short, on Sunday morning, they diagnosed that I'd had a heart attack on the Friday night, two stents put in, back at work 10 days later. Wow. I can't even imagine what hearing this and experiencing that might have been like for you. And then you're back at work as if nothing happened. So what was the mindset at that time? 
Yeah, great question. I mean, well, number one, when I experienced the heart attack, it wasn't, oh, I'm having a heart attack because I don't think we're hardwired for that, unless it's very, very obvious. This was less obvious. I thought, okay, well, maybe this is stress. Maybe this is fatigue. That was the Friday night. The Saturday, I was under-energized, so I went to the gym. (laughs) I managed one kilometer on the treadmill before my body was just like, what are you doing? Get off. Stop this immediately. I was still like, well, I have to do my job because that's what high achievers do. We keep going. I conducted a performance of Hamilton in the afternoon, having had a heart attack the night before because that's what we do, right? And I came off. I was hallucinating. I was sweating. It's crazy. I put my associate on for the evening and then got diagnosed on the following Sunday. But once I got fixed and went back to work, the challenge very quickly became, well, how do I change my methods of working? Because ironically, I'd done a lot of the good stuff that I needed to do, the change of diet, the exercise routine, all of that stuff years before. Yeah. This was much more nuanced and required a fundamental shift in thinking about how I was actually going to maintain the standards of, at the time, the biggest Broadway show on the planet and do that in less stressful ways for Julian Reeve. And that journey was really interesting. And I'm sure everybody's kind of sitting on the edge of their seat wanting to know what that is. But before we dive into that, you know, I do want to just say that this is what we do, right? We have the heart attack and then we go back to work because that's just how we're wired. And I have to say, you're really lucky to have survived the heart attack so that you're here to kind of tell the story about it. I went to graduate school with a dear friend. And after graduation, I got this note notice that he had gone to the gym, kind of like you described, and he had a heart attack and he did not recover. Yeah, I'm sorry. And it was such a shock, honestly. Yes. This is the guy who I sat next to on the couch when we were interviewing for the program. We'd been through this entire journey together, and he had a young family. He had a little kid at home and a wife, and I kept thinking, oh, my goodness. I can't even imagine that wife of his and having yeah. to listen to this news and never seeing her husband again. So this is real. And this is very serious stuff. So I'm really glad that you're here to shine a light on this. Mm. Because there are a lot of people who probably work as hard as you did before you made these changes. And what I think is also really important is you mentioned that before you had the heart attack, you'd already done what seemed to be, quote unquote, all the things. You changed your diet, Mm. you did the exercise, like you did all the stuff that we're told it's supposed to keep us healthy and you still had the heart attack, right? So there's more that we need to do in a sense, or there's maybe not more that we need to do, but there's different things that we need to understand about what it really takes to prevent that accumulation of stress. And so, yes, I'm really glad that you're here to talk about that and do Take us on that journey with you about what you discovered that actually works. Yeah, I mean, first off, I'm sorry to hear about your friend. It's not an uncommon occurrence, sadly. And to your point, you know, I don't take any day for granted now because my cardiologist actually came to see me after putting the stents in and said, I hope you understand how lucky you were 
or how lucky you are. Yes. And I initially, I just shrugged it off. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I get it. I've had a heart attack. Thanks for fixing me. I need to get back to work. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. It's like, that's it's what like, we do. It's like what enough with the small talk. I exactly. Guess, I it's like, come do. on, you know, yes. I, uh, let me pay my bill. I'll be out of your hair. You can fix yes, the yes, next yes. guy. Yeah. But he said, you know, he really slowed me down. And he said, you know, please understand that your right coronary artery was 95% blocked. It was hanging on by a thread. Wow. And I can guarantee you that had you put your body through any more stress prior to checking in, because by that point would establish the timeline of the attack on the Friday night, me checking in on Sunday morning, had you put your body through any more stress, there's every chance that that heart would have failed and it wouldn't have been strong enough to recover by itself or to hang on. So I hope you've connected with that. And I'll be really honest with you, it kind of landed at the time, but it didn't really. Yeah. Because I was too in the moment. I was too stressed. I was too this, that, and the other. It's only really months later where you go, goodness, I, yes, okay, all right. So what did I do? Well, I think, you know, this was really the start of my own journey to what I now call perfect equilibrium. And I started recognizing that, number one, I couldn't do this by myself. So I got some help from a psychologist. And I recognized that there were things out of my control that I couldn't, you know, change for my own benefit. But there was much within my own control. Yes. I actually started with my perfectionism. We mm -hmm. kind of realized that the root cause of my heart attack really was my perfectionism. I'd mm -hmm. been brought up in a very musical family. My mother was my first piano teacher. So any psychologist will rave a big red flag. <laughs> go, I'm a okay, here we go. <laughs> here starts the perfectionism journey. And that's true. Yeah. And I have used my adaptive perfectionism to great kind of success over the years sure. it explains a lot of my career path but sure. my maladaptive perfectionism has led to chronic low self-esteem mm. depression touching on very hard times that i turned to for many years i turned to booze drugs pretty much anything that i could get my hand on to get through so a lot of the reason why my body had got to the point where the heart where the arteries were just like nope bad diets, the stuff I've mentioned previously. And so getting to the root of the perfectionism was really interesting because as I found later on when I went on to coach high achievers, we value our perfectionism, don't we? It's like yes. something that, you know, it, it's like a differentiator to others. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, if I'm a perfectionist, we're kind of taught to say, well, what's your biggest flaw? Well, I'm a perfectionist in job interviews. But actually, right. secretly, we're going, yeah, but that actually really makes me really good. I'm just not going to tell you that part. Sure. And so I had to figure out how to kind of manage my own expectations, manage my own perfectionism so that I could experience less stress, higher self-esteem, so that I would be better motivated in the better position and closer to perfect equilibrium to be able to still deliver my own standards that in turn would get the same standards from the stage and from the orchestra pit so that the audience would walk away happy. You've got to remember that this was Hamilton at a time where people were spending well over $1,000 a, a ticket. It was at the height of its success in 2017. Yeah. The pressure was incredible. 
And it was all about the results, quite rightly. It was about Hamilton has to be the best it can be every night. And that journey with perfectionism was fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of like there's two sides to that perfectionism coin. Right. And I think that's what makes it so hard for people to, quote unquote, get rid of it, because they're like, well, I wouldn't have gotten to where I am today if I wasn't a perfectionist. And there are certainly, I would say, certain careers where we want perfectionists, right? We want that airplane pilot to land that plane just perfect because there you go. <laughs> we don't need to crash just because they're on their Absolutely not perfect day. Right. Absolutely. You know, or we want that surgeon who's putting that, you know, this, nice dent in, you know. Yeah, we want them to do it perfectly because yeah, I mean, we don't want to die under the knife because right. they're not doing right. a good job. Right. So, it is kind of a slippery slope. It can be. And I think, you know, this kind of leads nicely into where I took my career after Hamilton, because I realized that people value their perfectionism. I was tired of the message of perfectionism's bad. And I also recognized that there was a desperate need for a different message, a disruptive message that would better resonate with perfectionists so that they could get in front of the pain point. Because I realized that many perfectionists were just like me in the fact that they would only do something about their perfectionism when they hit the pain point. So I was like, how can we reframe our language to inspire perfectionists to do something sooner? And with all due respect to brilliant people like Brené Brown writing books like The Gifts of Imperfection, perfectionists will will largely walk past that book until they have a heart attack. So if they're in the airport, they'll see that book on the shelf and they'll go, I don't actually think there are any gifts to imperfection because they value their perfectionism. Sure. So what's the title of the book that they will read? And that was really the subject of my TEDx. It was called Reframing Perfectionism, the Vital Need for Change. And I argue that instead of saying we're going to play with it, we're going to manipulate it in our favor to get rid of the bad stuff and keep the good stuff. How do we do that? We keep standards high by aiming for the perfection that we need from the pilot and from the surgeon, from anyone in that type of job. But we are kinder to ourselves by using self-compassion to get to the result. There was a study out of Australia in 2018 that showed that self-compassion heavily regulates our experience with depression. Depression is one of the things correlated with perfectionism. So I was like, okay, There's a fairly solid argument here to say that self-compassion will do the same thing for perfectionists, as in regulate the experience. And it does. I prove it to myself every day. And so what we can do is we can start to prioritize our perfectionism, for example. So coming back to the pilot who's landing the plane, he absolutely needs to be on point and perfect when he's landing the plane. But he doesn't need to be on point and perfect when he's stocking his fridge. The fridge doesn't have to be in alphabetical order, right? That's right. That's right. His car doesn't have to be completely immaculate. So what you're doing is you are bringing yourself closer to perfect equilibrium or balance or whatever you want to call that by working strategically to keep the things that you value and get rid of the stuff that you don't. And that's a really valuable exercise for any perfectionist, I think. Yeah. And it's really, really interesting that you kind of came across this because as I was coaching my group and they were all perfectionists, we kind of landed in the same place as what you just described because 
they weren't willing to let go of the perfectionism yes. in their work. And they have their reasons, but they did realize that maybe they don't need to do everything perfectly. And maybe there are things that if they just focus on the certain things that they have to do perfectly, maybe that becomes their focus and they can delegate out everything else and let somebody else do their version of it because it doesn't have to be perfect. So it's like you're sorting through all of your tasks and then you're asking yourself these really interesting questions like does this have to be done perfectly am i the one that has to do it can it be done by someone else and you start to delegate some stuff out you start to prioritize and then you can keep your perfectionism but you reduce the pressure that you put on yourself so i love that we kind of came to the same yeah completely that's great i love it awesome so that's one big lesson that you took away were there any others Yeah, I mean, what's not to take away from a journey like that? I mean, it's taken a minute. The sort of closure of the Hamilton Circle was I went back to work and I learned all sorts of valuable ways that I now teach to achieve success in healthier ways and all that was great. Sadly, the effect of actually physically doing the job started to have an effect on me physically. So I picked up a repetitive strain injury probably about a year after the heart attack that Mm -hmm. turned into a second repetitive strain injury and I was halfway through a show in Puerto Rico with Lin-Manuel Miranda the show's creator and star of the show he was playing Alexander Hamilton and I was in so much pain Mm. that I thought I have to quit and it was the hardest decision I've ever had to make because I'd worked for 25 30 years to get to the top one percent my industry here I was set for life arguably you know performing every night one of the greatest pieces of art that's ever been written, being paid well, being surrounded by incredible people. I mean, I was there. That was it. And I had to basically quit and start all over. And there were many lessons with that. No least, probably the first that I encourage anyone with burnout to really lean into. And I think it's important to recognise I don't regard that part of my life as being my burnout experience. I think it was something that gave birth to perfect equilibrium. I've since burned out. So what I'm trying to say is that I know that burnout, the feeling of burnout is very different from having a heart attack. And so when I say I use this or encourage people to lean into this next thing with burnout, you kind of get the idea that I've connected with that as what burnout is. Mm -hmm. Really, it's acceptance. And I think, you know, so much of us as high achievers it's the same for smokers. It's the same for drinkers. They, you read the bad story on the cigarette packet. Oh, that'll never happen to me. And there has to be an acceptance that, like it or not, because we are high achievers, we lean into stress. We need stress. We enjoy stress. We actually base our self-worth on the amount of stress that we experience to a degree through the self-worth theory. And we need you stress, not de-stress. And so the acceptance that we need stress in our life, the acceptance element is responsibility. We have to take responsibility for what that means. If we're not going to get rid of it completely, we have to at least manage ourselves effectively, systematically, strategically, so that we can lean into the good stress when it's appropriate to do so. But we have strategies to get away from the bad stress so that we don't burn out. And I think that acceptance point is key because without it, we really can't do anything else. 
Okay. So if somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, so now you're telling me that there's a good kind of stress and there's a bad kind of stress. So define that for us. Like, how do we know what to look for, which is which, and how do we have different strategies for the good stress versus the bad stress? Yeah. So I kind of follow Kelly McGonigal's thinking with this in the fact that, you know, we have way more power over our stressful situations than we think we do. All too often, and this was really born out of the perfectionism thinking, all too often people go, perfectionism, bad, stress, bad. But like anything, there are two sides to the story. Mm-hmm. And with stress, I think, so we have stress, which is good stress, and we have de-stress, which is bad stress. The good stress is everything that we often feel when we're doing something for the first time. So, for example, in my keynotes, I actually use music from Hamilton to get people involved, and then I get them rapping, which is all great fun. But then I start to stress them out by putting more pressure on them to deliver. And what they do is they go, in four minutes, I take them from eustress to de-stress. And they really connect with the physicality of that. Now, what happens? Well, initially, there's excitement. There is motivation. There is a degree of fun surrounding the stress that you're feeling. You're kind of leaning into it because it's kind of making you thrive. And there's a kind of physiology that goes with that. But the longer or the more you lean into de-stress, partly through no fault of your own, and I'll come back to that in a minute, the symptoms change. So the minute we start to feel a degree of anxiety about our work, you might have flipped into distress. When we start experiencing headaches, for example, it's the physical. Insomnia is another one. And everyone's different. And I don't like to preach a kind of formula with this because of that reason. But I think the biggest thing that people can do to really get on top of, am I experiencing eustress or de-stress, is to lean into self-awareness. We are simply not aware of what we go through on a regular basis. Brilliant organizational psychologist, Tasha Urich, in her book, Insight, research for that book basically came out with 95% of us think that we possess adequate self-awareness, where the actual number is somewhere between 12 and 15%. Now, that tells us that over 80% of people at any one time are walking around lying to themselves about themselves in terms of what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're sensing. And so asking yourselves those types of questions every day Often, what am I feeling right now? Do I need a drink of water? Do I need to stand up and stretch? Am I feeling too much stress? What can I do to move away from that stress? Can I change my perception of the situation if I actually can't change it because the workload is the workload? Can I change my psychology? Can I reframe it so that I can approach it in healthier ways? And all of those techniques are born from that self-awareness that we think we have, but actually we don't. I think it's very tricky because we're kind of living in a delusion, right? We are deluded to believe that we are self-aware when in fact we're not. So it's kind of like the, I don't know what I don't know scenario. But I think- Sorry to interrupt. Can I ask though, what do you think creates the delusion? Well, I think in general, we think- 
we're more on top of ourselves than we really are. Right. But I think given the fact that people are having heart attacks left and right or any kind of, you know, that are burning out left and right or whatever, fill in the blank, tells us that we're not listening to our bodies. Yeah. And why are we not listening? Maybe because we're we hear the signs but we kind of ignore them but maybe we just aren't listening maybe mm -hmm. we're just not aware that they're there right so that could be an indication and i think what's really important in that message that you just said is if you know that statistic to be true now that you've heard it yeah. then you can assume that you're probably one of those people who thinks you're more self-aware than you actually are, which will then encourage you to ask yourself these questions and continually check in with yourself. Because here's the truth. Even if you think you're self-aware, chances are you're not asking yourself those questions every single day. Correct. You know, we're not checking in with ourselves enough. Mm -hmm. We're not asking those questions enough. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's just the strategy of how to make sure that you're not a statistic and that you do have that self-awareness because that self-awareness is going to keep you in check. So what about if you were to, I love that you gave almost like a call to action. What about if you were to ask yourself throughout the day, how am I feeling right now? What do I need right now? Do I need to go to the bathroom? Do I oh, need a drink of water? Do I need yes. to stretch my legs? Like, yes. what do I need right now? Because what we're programmed to do, you know, if you're working remotely is back to back meetings, check mm -hmm. the emails, answer phone calls, like do all the things that you're supposed to do. And often we don't give ourselves those breaks. And if you're not working remotely, it doesn't much change. It's just that you're in person, but then, you know, you've got those in-person meetings and then you've got the emails and everything else that comes yes. along with it. Yeah. So I think it's just like this mindset shift of number one, you do need those breaks, but what do you do in those breaks? It's not enough to just carve out that time, but it's really about checking in with yourself and figuring out what do I need right now? Yeah. And I love the fact that you've added need because that's the second layer. So the three questions I start people out with is what am I thinking? What am I feeling? And what am I sensing? <laughs> and the answers to those questions then become, if you're listening to this on a podcast, just imagine this. If you imagine you've got a line from left to right, you're starting from the left. That's the beginning of the journey. By asking those three questions, you move along the line to the right, which empowers you to keep moving but reactively based on your answers. So the direction that you head will be based on what you're either sensing, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. That then leads to the door you've just opened, which is what do I need? And I think that's a very slightly different kind of level of nuance within the question asking, because you really are having to be very self-aware, particularly physically, what do I need? in that five minute break do i need to stretch do i need water and it's i think it's also important to recognize that this language doesn't come necessarily quickly it's not something that you know self-awareness doesn't just necessarily magically appear it's like anything it's like practicing the piano or learning hamilton practice is going to make you better at this stuff so the more you ask these questions, the more able you will be to answer the ultimate question, which I think is the one that you posed, what do I need? I think the self-awareness business is so important. And Absolutely. we know it's 
the foundation of all emotional intelligence, which means that if you have a hard time with your own mind, if you have a lot of negative emotions that you're struggling with, the way to flip that has to be first developing your self-awareness because you'll understand that there's a relationship between your thoughts and your feelings and you won't know what those thoughts are you'll only experience the result of those thoughts you'll experience the guilt or the resentment but you won't understand that you're the one that has having thoughts that brings about those emotions and so to tap into your own psyche into your own way of thinking about things is going to give you a huge clue about what you need to change mm. so that you can have a different result in the world so i am totally on board with you yeah i love it so i know that based on your experiences you have some myths that you came here to debunk for us so what Ooh. is the first myth we kind of touched on it earlier that you know i think high achievers are so programmed to achieve that it becomes all about the result so the first myth is that the result is everything and the work that i really enjoy doing is encouraging people to think about success in a kind of 360 agile way perspective rather than a linear a to b way mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, so often we simply take the result. Did I succeed? Was I successful in the task that I was given as being the marker and the kind of the checkbox for so many different things, including our self-worth? Yeah. And there's a very strong argument to say that, you know, the result is better if actually we look at the journey to the result more holistically. We look after ourselves. We're kinder to ourselves. We lean on others, we delegate, we get in communities to be able to support us, all of the stuff. That's the first one, is that the result isn't everything. It's much more than the result itself. Yeah, I think having goals gives us a sense of purpose. It's something that gets us up in the morning and we kind of know how to direct our energy, our attention, our focus. But as you said, it's really about the quality of your life. What is it that you're doing along the way to that goal? That yeah. really counts because if you do have that heart attack or you get that cancer diagnosis and they tell you you've got two months to live or whatever your kind of situation is where you now don't have the luxury of time, people who have had those experiences have all said the same thing. Yeah. It's an opportunity for them to kind of reflect on their life. And what they say is that they're so happy with the kind of legacy that they're leaving for the people that come after them, but they're sad about not having the ability to continue on. And sometimes it's not even just for them, but it's because of the people that they leave behind. Yes. Sometimes, you know, you get that diagnosis where they're like, you only have two months to live and then you kind of outlive that diagnosis. Then every day becomes one of those days where you're just grateful to be alive. And it's just sure. like you said, it changes your perspective on what's really important. And you start to not just live for tomorrow, but you're living for today. And it's like the little things that make a big difference, but, you know, kind of like, oh, you know, I had this nice exchange with somebody at the grocery store that can make a nice little moment in your day. But it's also the big things of like, I have a supportive spouse, or I have beautiful children, or I have colleagues that 
I have a great relationship with. And it's both the little things and the big things that give our life purpose. And it's not overlooking those things when we're so focused, we sometimes get so hyper-focused on the result and the goal and achieving that we don't make time for ourselves and others. And we overlook all these things that we really have a lot of gratitude for when time is crunched. Absolutely. I love all that. And yes, you're absolutely right. My personal journey was very much, you know, realigning what you've just spoken about is, you know, I think high achievers are particularly guilty of, it's not only the minutiae, if you like, of striving for excellence or perfection, whatever you're striving for, you know, in everything that you do every day, you know, there is kind of much deeper connotations. And this was very prevalent in my old industry as a performer, If you're not on stage, then who am I? Because if I'm performing, I have identity. And this is why so many out-of-work actors struggle, because when they're out of work, they don't know who they are. They can't express themselves. And So I think much of what you're speaking about is absolutely right, because we have to get away from achievement being the marker for who we are, or our job being the market. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, you described how you worked so hard to get to the top. Mm-hmm. And once you got there, you couldn't stay there, which is, yeah. you know, you might say is like the biggest crock of your life, right? Like somebody sold you the story of like, work hard and you'll <laughs> reap all the benefits. Yeah. And then you can't even like, you know, you said, oh, I was set for life. And it's like, no, actually, you're not. You have to step down because you can't stay here, Right which you might say this sucks. And I think it's the same experience that people have when they're burned out of like, I worked so hard and now I can't even do my work. I can't even think straight, you know, and this sucks. And a lot of people reinvent themselves and they'll change careers altogether. And that's not always the case and it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. But I think it is an opportunity to look at your life and maybe you've put too many eggs in one basket and what can you shift around? Like maybe have more baskets, you know? Yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah. Right. That sort of thing. Okay. So, I mean, we could talk about this all day, but I know you've got two other myths for us. So tell us. Two other myths. What's the, uh, what's the second myth? Well, this one is for, you know, business owners and leaders. One of the biggest myths that I'm really trying very hard within my messaging to debunk is that burnout management takes time, a huge amount of money, and is incredibly disruptive in organizations. And, you know, in my experience, that just isn't true. It's true for people that haven't thought about how they are really going to structure your culture, your social environment, your systems, your management styles, all the stuff. But realistically, there are some super simple ways that you can really start having a really powerful effect on burnout with employees today, right now. You could do this right now. Get out your laptop and send a message to your team that says something along the lines of, hi, team. Just wanted to check in and say, you know what? I'm so proud of the work that we're doing. And you know, I'm really excited to continue this project with you. Have a great weekend. Make sure you relax. It's important that you chill out. And I'll see you on Monday, ready to hit it again. You'd be amazed at what that level of support does for burnout in organizations. It's huge. Because what you're doing is you're basically throwing that life raft, if you like, to the drowning employee 
and they need something desperately to hold on to. And that simple email takes you 15 seconds to write, but it will last 15 months or 15 years in the hearts of employees who need it at that moment, which makes them loyal, which then makes them motivated, which means that you end up retaining them. And that is a really small piece of the jigsaw, but it's very valuable and very powerful. And I just want to add to that, you know, we talk here about decoding burnout in terms of your personality, but I think when it comes to the workplace, if you think about burnout, there are so many different reasons why people burn out. And part of the many reasons is a lack of recognition, a lack of acknowledgement. Like when you feel resentful because you do all this work and nobody seems to care, nobody says thank you, then you really build up a lot of that negativity within you. And you lose that motivation because like, well, they don't care. Why should I care? You know, and it becomes like the burnout story. And if we know that lack of recognition leads to burnout, then clearly one thing that we could easily do to remedy that is have more recognition in place. And so I love what you said, because it doesn't have to take a lot of time and it doesn't have to cost money. It could just be like knowing what you need to focus on. So decoding exactly what leads to burnout will give you the solutions that you need to implement in your place of work to turn it all around. So that's fantastic. Okay, we got one more. Yeah, one more. And actually, we've used the word. This one is, I love to debunk the thinking that we have to do more to overcome burnout. And I think we're hardwired, aren't we, as human beings to be like, you know, what more can I be doing to be successful? What more can I be doing to get more money to, you know, become healthier, all of the stuff. And I'm a huge fan of the phrase that I coined a couple of years ago, let the silence speak. And what I mean by that is that all too often we're on this treadmill of life running at a million miles an hour that there's so much information that is being thrown at us that we just simply don't have the capacity to withhold or to accept. We'll only do that if we slow down. Mm. And so the reason why that's applicable to this third debunk, that we must do more to overcome burnout, is that it's actually often about we must do less to overcome burnout. And that's not about immediately from your listeners. I'm probably going to get the reaction of, well, I don't want to be lazy and I still have to achieve and all that stuff. And it's not necessarily always about time. And it's certainly not about being lazy. It's the perception of what can I take away? We talked earlier on about, you know, prioritizing perfectionism. What can I take away from my existence that allows more space for me to focus on the things that I care about and the things that I need to focus on so that I can become healthy or that I can become more successful in healthier ways. What can I take away? What can I subtract? And I would add to that, maybe not just time so that you can focus more, but also time where you don't have to focus. Absolutely. Like just time to relax. Yeah. Let the silence speak. Like literally... There's so much that goes on that we don't tune into. And it's not always about meditation or, you know, deep kind of work that some people do. And that's great. I do that myself. Sometimes it can just be a walk in nature for 10 minutes because we're experiencing natural light. 
our vitamin D levels are at a place where it's like, okay, this is great. Then we get into dopamine and all the stuff. And, you know, things really start to benefit us from very, very small incremental changes. I think sometimes it could be as simple as just lying on the couch and listening to music. You don't have to, yeah, you don't have to go for the walk and do the meditation Mm -hmm. and do, you know, like, yes, all those things are great. And sometimes we just need not to do anything. Right. And yes, as you said, permission to do that. So thank you very much, Julianne, for sharing your story with us and these great tips of really lessons from your journey as well, because I think it's very applicable to our listeners. Yeah, thank you. It's been a joy to be here. So for people who want to learn more about your work, whether it's about perfect equilibrium or about the work that you do within companies, I will definitely have a link to your TED Talk, but where else should they go to find out more? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the website is a great place to start, perfectequilibrium.co. I'm hoping that by the time this episode is live, that we will have launched Pepper, which is the Perfect Equilibrium Personal Assistant, which is an AI platform, closed AI platform that leverages chat GPT that becomes your personal stress and burnout coach. Um, it learns what you need. It learns how you speak, what you want, all of the stuff. And I've been working really hard on this because I'm really motivated to make sure that we start implementing the types of techniques that I've spoken about today easily and quickly into our busy lives. And that's what Pepper can help you do completely free. There's no charge for this. And, you know, if you want to look into the consultancy side of things, all of that information is also on the website. That is exciting. Well, I definitely would love it if you would send us an update when that is Yeah, ready. absolutely. Of course. I think that would be super cool to find out more. Yeah. And thank you so much for the work that you do. It's really refreshing. Thank you. And thank you for yours, too. Thanks. Now, for all of you thinkers out there, what did you think of the show? If you're a feeler, how did hearing this make you feel? And for all of you doers, what are you going to do based on what you've heard? Now, regardless of what your personality code is, my goal is to spread the word that burnout is a unique experience. And by decoding it, you can find solutions that are equally unique to you. Help me spread this message by subscribing to the show on Apple or Spotify and leaving us a review, telling us what you think, feel, or do differently because of the show. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can also leave me a comment or questions to answer in future episodes. And please recommend the show to anyone struggling with burnout. If you're ready to take the next step with me to DYB, go to decodeyourburnout.com and I'll see you right back here next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.